0: Hello, welcome to About Learning. I'm Stan Pinsent, and this is a podcast where we explore big ideas in education. This is the end of season two. I'm calling it because right now I'm just starting my summer holiday and I'm about to enjoy six weeks of being outside, being with family and forgetting about work for a while. Now, I'm being joined here by my partner, Zoe, who's very kindly agreed to make sure I'm making sense and Zoe's about to join the the great worldwide family of teachers.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. I think.
0: Tell us what are you getting? What are you doing this year?
1: Uh, coming in September, I'm going to be going to UCL's Institute of Education to do my PGCE to teach secondary English, which for the Americans in the room means teaching English literature in middle and high school.
0: Are you really excited?
1: I am really excited. I'm going into it very positive. It's been interesting to listen to this podcast and your journey, because it seems like you've come a long way from traditional education and the initial training that you had. So I think we're going to challenge each other a lot next year in both of our thinking. And I think that will actually be a very exciting way to become a teacher.
0: Glad you think so. I'm going to try and not be too much of a downer um, as I sort of question everything. We didn't plan this, but I wanted to ask you some things now. Sure. And I'll ask you same things later in the year. and We'll see if the answers have changed. Oh,
1: I like that. That's yeah. good. Yeah.
0: What do you think makes a good teacher?
1: I think a good teacher is someone who can facilitate a student to want to learn. So that could take a lot of different forms. But f- the good teachers that I've experienced have facilitated my learning by being, by instilling passion in me for a subject. Uh, Sometimes that comes from their own passion about the subject. Sometimes it comes from them giving me the tools I need to solve problems I didn't know I would encounter. But a lot of times it's just creating a classroom or even just a space, a non-traditional space, where kids are valued in the same way that you as a teacher are valued and creating that sense of equity in the room. Because I think that leads to better results, better conversation, better um, fulfillment of your goals.
0: I get the feeling you might have thought about this more than the average PGCE that you're going to meet in September. Well, I did
1: apply for <laughs> and really study for my interviews. But I also think that I came from a slightly non-traditional educational background. I mean, Georgetown Day School was very much a school. But uh, so much of the focus was on this equality of teacher and student relationships. I mean, we called our teachers by their first name, and that sounds like a small thing. But what it meant in practice was that uh, we felt comfortable having any and all kinds of conversations with our teachers. And our teachers were so receptive to those conversations. Um, I had one teacher named John Burkhart who said his joy, the the joy he gets from teaching comes from when he learns something from his students. And he's been teaching for something like 40 years. He always teaches Shakespeare. He has an infinite knowledge of Shakespeare. But he still to this day believes he can learn something from his kids. And I think that two-way street is really important and was really important for me.
0: What do you think you're going to find most difficult?
1: Uh, I think adapting to the curriculum will be a challenge. There are a lot of set texts in the British curriculum that students need to read to pass their GCSE exams. And on the one hand, you want to do a very good job teaching those texts because you want students to be able to pass an exam. Because in the way that the current system is set up, that is their path to success. But I don't think... Um, I think it will be hard to inspire those students with those texts. And I think that's a good challenge. I don't think we shouldn't read the text because students don't necessarily immediately connect with them. But uh, I think I'll find that really hard and um, I'll find the lack of freedom to choose maybe something that I would feel is more inspiring or more relevant.
0: So could, can you tell us about one text that you might be a bit worried about? Uh,
1: well, the main text that we need to read in preparation for the PGCE is Great Expectations. And I think a lot of students um, would see that text on a curriculum and feel immediately turned off by it because, especially in this day and age, it's an old white guy writing really long time ago. Um, you know, there are some really interesting themes about class, about privilege, about love, about um, what it means to make your way in the world that I think actually students would connect with. But I think uh on the face of it, they would probably approach that text with a lot of skepticism.
0: Okay. Uh thank you so much. It really felt like you were prepared for that. But it really I have wasn't. Not said no. <laughs> um so I can't wait to see if and how your answers change in let's say six months or a year. Um, so I'm gonna jump into into my reflection of, of this season and where my thoughts are at now. Um and just as a bit of a, a teaser this is called Reform or Revolution. So you can try and... Listeners, you can try and think about what I'm talking about there. So, there yeah, we've had four episodes so far this season. First, I spoke to Yoni about utilitarianism and education, which was really nice um, start to the season because it was nice and theoretical and we didn't have to think too hard about how to make things happen in the real world. Um, and then we moved on to Dr Alex Blakes and we talked about how... Education could learn from scientific research and research methods. Um, and that was a really great conversation that kind of linked on to the things we've seen in the media during the pandemic about scientific studies and how we know things and how we work out whether things work, whether interventions work. Um, episode three was with Margaret Wang and we talked about teachers, what are teachers' uh, responsibilities, how much freedom should they have, can they, should they be a political And finally, we had the Ofsted Ofsted project, where we at last got to speak to some students from my school, School 21, and they just happened to have been investigating in their project Ofsted, the inspection system for the UK, and they had so much to say. Genuinely, I learned a lot about Ofsted from them, and they had some really insightful suggestions for how we could do things better. Mainly, maybe we should get rid of third-party inspections because they are causing more harm than good, so quite a radical suggestion for them and that was really exciting looking back as a whole i feel like behind the scenes i've still been thinking over season one because i think what season one culminated in was thinking about unschooling we spoke to joe who's been home home educating her children and she suggested i read uh, free to learn And that's a book I'd like to talk about in a second because it's been hugely influential for me. So behind this sort of normal-looking season, I've been thinking about really, really fundamental questions like, why do we have schools? What are they for? And what would happen if we stopped sending children to schools as we know them? And would it really be that bad? And perhaps most consequentially, is it okay to make children do things they don't want to do? And so, sorry, I'm really sorry, that's not the kind of question you should be asking as you start your PGCE. You should be concerned with much more functional matters like how to get through a lesson and just make sure all the basics work. But I've been kind of agonising over some quite basic questions. I still think this season links into those thoughts, though, because we've been... The first two episodes were sort of looking at how do we know that school works? And I think a big problem is the things that are easiest to measure are the things that you can game. So exam results are the easiest thing to measure. I think as a society, we're really good at measuring exam results, identifying who's doing well, who's not doing well enough, and intervening. The problem is exam results are quite a poor proxy for a good education. You can, I mean, I've been experiencing this recently, you can smash your GCSE maths just by being good at memorizing methods and applying them to familiar questions. That doesn't make you a good mathematician. And to be honest, some people who've really done well in their GCSEs are really quite bad mathematicians because they're not flexible. They don't know how to solve problems. They don't know how to get themselves unstuck. So that's kind of one example of schools have clearly gamed the system by giving students these little package of knowledge they need to pass the test and the sum total of that those packages is a poor education. So the things that we can most easily measure are not necessarily the most important things about education or they might not indicate a good education. And I was hoping Margaret Wang would tell me since exams are gameable and since you know people at the top making policy are risk averse and want everyone to sort of do the same thing um, which can end up with an uninspiring education. I was hoping she would tell me that teachers should just go rogue. They should use their instincts and do what they think is best. But she had a very level-headed approach and sort of said, well, you can only do that if you've got a system which supports teachers, which trains them to make good decisions. And in the US and the UK, I feel we don't have a system that really empowers teachers to be fully autonomous. And of course, the Ofsted project links to all of the three previous previous episodes. Uh, Ofsted is about holding schools accountable. It's about measuring who's doing well and who's not. And it's doing quite a bad job of it. It's focused on the most measurable things, the quality of the education as reflected through exam results and uh, who's marked their books and whether kids appear to be paying attention in lessons, sort of very superficial metrics, which I would argue don't really measure what a good education is but what is a good education I still don't think we've really answered that question and I'd like to talk about two books that have got me thinking about what a good education is before I do would you like me to did I kind of glaze over anything there
1: I guess the question that pops into my mind is once you define a good education, do you, does society need you to then measure it? And does the process of measuring it then somehow distort the good education, whatever that might be. So if society needs some sort of metric to understand how kids learn and how well they learn, um, does that go against your kind of philosophy of what good education is? And is it even possible to measure if we don't have a measuring system? What does that mean? Like, what does that mean for the world? How do students go away and know what they know? How do adults look at students and kids and think about um, where they need help? Or uh, in a less generous way way you know how how is anyone ever ranked in terms of a job application or you know getting into university um but i think first you need to define what a good education is
0: yeah i think that's a really good question i mean if you look at state education the government has a responsibility to make sure everyone gets a good education and if they're not measuring who is and who isn't succeeding in education they're not it's very difficult to make sure you're not letting anyone down so I can see that measuring is really important. And yet, measuring in education is really problematic because once you tie education to assessment, the, you're in danger of changing the motivation from just pure love of learning to passing the assessment or getting the credential. So we, we always assume that exams and education or qualifications and education should be deeply linked
1: is there a way to measure without assessment or will any sort of measurement ultimately in the eyes of students become an assessment? And then the second follow-up question to that is, if there is a way to measure without assessment, does that put a huge burden on teachers um, to have an intimate knowledge of their students and what they know and where they need help? And do teachers have the time, resources, energy to do that?
0: To that last question, yes, I think getting rid of formal assessment or or rolling back formal assessment basically means you need to rely on human relationships and there's definitely a good argument that you know a parent doesn't need a test to know how emotionally mature their child is or how happy their child is maybe because they know them intimately so there, in in close personal relationships there isn't a need for formal assessment and i suppose in an ideal world educators and students would know each other well enough that some sort of artificial test environment wasn't necessary to tell who's doing what.
1: And without formal assessment, teachers would have so much more time to actually get to know their students because you wouldn't have marking, you wouldn't necessarily need to teach the entire curriculum that you're currently teaching. So maybe there would be way more space for that relationship to form Mm -hmm. and for teachers to feel comfortable evaluating students in whatever method they think is right for either that environment or for that individual student.
0: I think there's a lot of things that would have to change because right now, typically in secondary school, teachers will only see each class for a few hours a week and each class has got 25 people. Even without assessments, they're not going to have time to sort of intimately know who knows what. But I think a lot of things could change. Why Why is there so much knowledge in the curriculum? Why do we have such an emphasis on subject specialism? And... Oh, a lot of things. Why do we spend so long in the classroom? Anyway, I'm going to jump into these books because I think they will answer some of these questions or at least provide an answer to these questions. So the first one was, I mentioned, recommended by Josephine Gunning in last season, Free to Learn, by Peter Gray. And um, he's from America. And a long time ago, his son in elementary school wasn't getting on well at all. He was really naughty. He was getting in trouble. He was diagnosed with ADHD. And it was really tragic. He His son wasn't enjoying it. No one was enjoying the situation. Anyway, Peter Gray decided, he's a scientist, he decided to take his son out of school and try and home educate him. And he ended up sending his son to uh, the original Sudbury School, which I'll talk about in a second, which is a sort of special kind of school, which is nothing like the school you imagined. But um, what Peter Gray's message is, is that, formal education or school education is unnecessary. He takes us to hunter-gatherer societies where obviously there's no school and the children in those societies are just free to go and do what they want all day. And it's amazing the way that they, they learn the skills of their culture almost automatically. Children are hardwired to play. They love playing. They love interacting. They love doing, like running around and just trying stuff. And that's nature's way of making sure we all educate ourselves and in in these hunter-gatherer societies it depends on what age they are obviously at some stage they're learning to walk then they're learning to talk they will be interested in the things going on around them they'll be interested in whatever it is the hunting making clothes the crafts going on around them because they want to succeed in their culture and at no point do the adults sort of pick them up and force them to do this or that so they never lose that love of learning and they never associate learning with work and They usually become productive, able members of their society uh, without ever having been forced to do anything, which is all very nice. Those are are hunter-gatherers, so there's a lot of arguments sort of like, well, there's a lot more skills and artificial things you need to know in our society. But the sort of thesis is there. Children have the curiosity they need to pick up the skills that are important in the world. And he contrasts that with what's going on in schools, which he calls coercive education. What he means by that is that we need children in schools to learn a lot of things. Sometimes they don't want to learn those things. To make sure they do it, we motivate them. And we end up replacing their internal motivation, their intrinsic motivation to learn things with external factors. We offer them, uh, well, we have competition. We praise people who are doing well. And criticize those who are doing poorly. We reward them. We punish them. We punish them if they're not behaving. Uh, we tell them how important academic credentials like qualifications are. So we're replacing that inbuilt natural curiosity with external factors. And the evidence shows that when we're externally motivated, we're a lot less effective at learning. So what Peter Gray actually suggests is that we need to stop cooping up children in classrooms and the best way for them to learn is through unsupervised outdoor play. He thinks that's like the holy grail and ideally the children will be mixing with children of other ages and he just sort of describes this as this like magical synthesis moment. Obviously you can imagine hunter-gatherer children have a lot of this unsupervised play outside and he's sort of like this is the environment in which children learn their limits. they learn their social skills, they learn about themselves, and they form their own worlds so they're, they're, everything they're doing is sort of practicing being a functioning adult human at whatever age they're doing it. The important thing about that is you know they'll play games, but they've got to make sure that everyone is enjoying the game, otherwise people could leave, so they're learning to sort of meet everyone and everyone's needs in the group, which is a really important skill which schools aren't very good at fostering. And the mixed age component is really important. Younger children learn from what the older children are doing and the older children learn to become leaders, which is something again, that's sorely lacking in schools now where everyone's stratified by year group. And you're sort of almost encouraged not to mix with others from other ages. And it also heightens sort of these artificial differences when people aren't um, developing at the same rates as others. But I'll come back to that in, in a moment. So, is there no need for schools then, according to Peter Gray? Well, Sudbury Schools, that's the the school his son went to, is a sort of radical democratic school. Uh, the original one's near Boston, and that's the one his son went to. Democratic because all the main decisions in the school are decided by everyone in the community. Students and staff have an equal vote in this sort of weekly democratic meeting they have. That's where they make decisions about what the rules are and how they want to govern the school. Um, so you can imagine what the benefits of that are. Everyone feels invested in what they're doing. Sort of misbehaviour is a rare thing because you feel like you've got a say and you've got a stake in what's happening. The children, this is why it's not really a school. The children can do what they want all day. There's no classrooms as we think of them. It's a building with rooms and stuff in, but they ultimately choose how to spend their time. And that could be on computer games. There's usually a nice outdoor space, so they're outside, or they're reading, or they're talking, or they're playing musical instruments. There are sort of teachers or adults who are there, and the students can ask them to like lay on academic courses for them, but they rarely do. They tend to just follow their passions, (laughs) Um, and they tend not to think in subjects. So it's kind of very, very radical, but... But, uh, but researchers have studied what happened, because this school's been around for two generations. They've studied what happens to these children later in life. And they tend to be very happy. They tend to have found their passion in school and be pursuing that in their career. And they tend to have no regrets about the way they were educated. And they tend to plan or be already educating their children in a similarly self-directed way. So the people who've been through the system tend to agree with it, which of course, is very dodgy metric, but it's not like we have a higher level of destitution and illiteracy in these children. They tend to be well-educated, and many of them went on went on to university and professional jobs.
1: It sounds like a very utopic environment, though, where kind of the way you're describing it, and maybe this isn't how he describes it in the book, but um, that everything else in a child's life, their home situation, their financial situation... Um, whatever medical whatever whatever medical stuff is going on in their life all of that falls away the minute they get into Sudbury school and instead they're just in this incredibly nurturing environment where everything is great and rosy and they have that drive and that passion to pursue something but I wonder what happens if you try to do this in a community where the kind of outside environment does not mirror this utopic interior environment what happens when these kids go home what you know I'm not saying that our traditional schools have solved that problem either, and that by learning Charles Dickens, they will somehow be able to confront the, you know, uh, emotional manipulation of their parents. But I guess I wonder how children who don't come from a particularly privileged or utopic background are able to thrive without hands-on support. And does it work for every child, or is this a very self-selecting group of kids who have been placed there by very engaged, willing, excited parents and thus have way more opportunity and potentially come from a, you know, a slightly higher mm-hmm. level than yeah. other kids.
0: So I completely agree with those reservations and absolutely those kids will not be a representative sample of the population of the U.S. um they're probably likely to be wealthier. They have involved parents. They're more likely to have um, sort of special educational needs because a lot of them couldn't cope with normal school for whatever reason. So it's definitely a very different kind of group. And I definitely share your worries about how this might not work for everyone. It's important to mention that this kind of idea is not about sort of taking away school and leaving kids a blank canvas. And so that if they're picking up bad habits at home, that becomes their whole life. It's about creating a nurturing environment in the school and i think there's a balance to be struck by freedom versus structure although this model is very very much on the freedom side there is still some structure now what i like about peter gray is he actually does propose a solution that could work on a national level which is nice of him Mm. he suggests that We could have these sort of all-purpose community centres, which could be everything, it could be your library, your leisure centre, your venue and your school all in one, and the people who use that building would have a democratic committee where everyone has an equal voice, and they would decide how to spend their funds and 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 what to do and what events to run, and that would include children and there would be people hired to be the sort of teachers so I think this is a very sort of uh, socialist dream, but I think there would have to be a lot of investment for that to work in let's say poor communities and well there's a lot of questions you could ask about this this book another one it could be you know the one, one thing about the school system we have is it was I think largely set up to address widespread poor education which was being or education which wasn't being passed on from generation to generation. So we've gone from being a society in the West of mostly illiterate people to mostly literate people. And I think that's partly down to schools. So you could say if we took away sc- coercive schools, we could go back to being illiterate and we can go back to poor standards of education. And I think we're never going to go back to being an illiterate society. Reading is so integral to living in our society that People are not ever going to grow up without learning to read.
1: I don't know. I think you could push back on that and say that videos and screens are taking away a lot of the in- the time children would usually spend working on their reading. And that actually the way a lot of kids these days interact with their world is not through reading, but mm-hmm. through digital media. That doesn't involve the same kind of literacy. Now, you could argue that maybe we should be redefining how we think of literacy, because if... Reading a newspaper is now unimportant, but Mm. uh, understanding the uh, manipulation behind TikTok is important. Mm. Like, that could be a different form of literacy. But if you think that all kids are going to have some sort of reading in their daily life, I'm not sure that's the right assumption anymore.
0: Maybe it's not. I I don't know a lot about reading, but my feeling is that... Teachers in primary schools see reading as this long labour intensive, learning to read as this long labour intensive process where you've got to sit kids down for an hour a day for five years before they can become a competent reader. I think if a child really wants to learn, they can pick up reading, It, I don't know, in something like 30 or 40, 50 hours of like sustained effort because they believe and they want to do it. And once you've learned to read and words are everywhere, then you. I just feel like you will pick up. Maybe this is something we can come back to when we speak, when you're midway or at the end of your PGC, because mm. then you you genuinely will know well
1: way more about reading, hopefully.
0: Hopefully, Um another question, the other kind of questions about this self-directed learning idea are all about, well, what if children don't learn the thing they, they need to learn? You know, if they're not being forced to learn all these different subjects, they're going to come out ignorant, and reading is just one of those things. I think maybe a more important one, but yeah, they're not going to learn the things they need to know if we don't force them to, right? And yeah, so buried in that question, which I've just constructed, um, is an assumption that forcing kids to learn things or coercing them works. And I've been a teacher long enough to know that there are, and I'm not exaggerating here, there are students in secondary school who go through lesson after lesson, day after day, without doing anything. Maybe they're doing the bare minimum to not get in that much trouble, but they are doing everything they can to avoid learning. And they're doing it very well. So they're really, really not learning much in school. <laughs> like f- for many children, forcing them simply is an extremely ineffective way of teaching them. And that- when, even when they do engage, we are ch- like, we're chopping up learning and spooning it into their mouths. It actually stops them from learning the, the higher skills of learning to learn because we do that for them. So we're actually, I think we're actually robbing them of the opportunity to learn how to be themselves or how to be a person. And, of course, the, the, the knock-on effects of school are that learning becomes a chore, something that you do at school, something to avoid. Um, and, yeah, like I said, they don't know how to learn and create independently, even if that's what they want to do. They don't know how. So the way that we deliver learning or force people to learn is really, I think, and I've agreed with the book on this, really, really damaging. Uh, and of course, on a whole separate note, like the curriculum, you're buried in that question, which I made up is the assumption that the curriculum is a fair reflection of what adults should know to be happy humans. And it's just not like, I teach maths GCSE. You don't need to know most of that to be a good human. It's the It's the cognitive skills, like learning how to think rationally, learning how to evaluate evidence that's in front of you. That's the important stuff that will get you through and and also number sense on some level, but like the actual nitty gritty what they're being taught in lessons, like histograms and quadratic equations, this is heresy for a math teacher to say it, but it's not useful. Like, yeah. So I don't think the curriculum is a good reflection of, of what you need to know to live a good life.
1: Well, I think that's, I would agree with that, but I also think unless you have a whole scale societal shift in the way that you um, a revolution Yeah, unless you have a revolution in the way that people value what people know Then the question of, well, what if they don't learn anything Becomes actually very important Because if a, a student comes out of an educational system And into a world where other students do know facts And are valued for knowing facts Or are valued for being able to do quadratics or Or more memorize, likely valued
0: for having the right piece of paper Sure Yeah
1: you know if they're if these students from a kind of radical background are entering that world and they can't prove any of that or can't do a quadratic equation mm-hmm. where does that leave them and how are like are they going to be screwed mm-hmm. um i yeah. don't
0: and i, don't I completely know. i completely sympathize with that and i think maybe they you know if for example let's just make this concrete let's suppose in this radical school they didn't have, they didn't do exams so these 16 year olds don't get GCSEs which is the exam when you do when you're 16 yeah they there will be places which is just like oh you don't have any GCSEs okay well we won't even look at you doesn't matter who you are and so they are at a disadvantage and what interesting what's happened this season is i've actually become less angry at really traditional schools which i traditionally love to hate on um who are really strict and really exam-focused and really dismissive of the child's thoughts, opinions and needs, I've actually stopped hating them as much because they're just a result of the system. They're they're just a result of the rewards out there for schools who can maximise exam results. The rewards being you get famous and you don't get inspected by Ofsted if you do well in your exams. So there are people on the other side of the debate who will say, yeah, these kids are poor, they're disadvantaged. And the best thing we can do for them is get them credentials because then they'll be taken seriously out there in the real world. They haven't got a safety net. They haven't got rich parents. They need these credentials to, to climb the ladder. And almost any means are justified. You know, if we're going to put them in detention for not bringing a pen, if we're going to say they can't run in the playground, all of these are real examples. If we're going to say they can't talk in the corridor, yeah, that might seem inhuman to you, but you don't understand how much they need this. So the other side of the debate, they're still saying we love kids and we want to do well, but they say the credentials are how they're going to do it and any means justify that. I say... I I guess this is like being a bit of a a Disney goodie. Like, if someone's had a hard life, treating them as if they're not a human at school so that they can get the credentials and somehow, like, be a lawyer... I don't know, it just... It feels pretty evil. So I can't... So I'm looking for reasons not to like it, which is bad logic. But... I've also been in, in a school like that, and it's like being in a prison, and I just personally find it really demoralising. So I guess one thing I would like to explore in a future season is I, I'd like to speak to someone who's truly from the other side of the debate and hear what they have to say, because I suspect their, their, their ideas will come from a place of love, but their conclusions will be vastly different. And I think it is partly a sense of, uh, about scale and time, most teachers are working for the kids in front of them. They want to do the best by them. And if you're teaching teenagers, the best thing to do is to help them get the exam grades they need. That's the kind thing to do. That's what they need. But to get those exam grades, you often have to neglect their interests, make them do things they don't want to do. And I really, really struggle with that. And that's why I, that's kind of why I'm thinking reform or revolution. I'll get to this later. Do I want to be a teacher trying to teach a bit better than than the norm? Or do I want to sort of gamble on starting a revolution, which is an exaggeration, but what I mean is trying to trigger some larger scale long-term change.
1: Putting aside um, the idea of credentials though, I think the other thing you could ask about the approach of the Sudbury schools or, um, on learning or a home education is, um, I, it, I mean, it's a big question, but is there some intrinsic human knowledge that every person needs to share. Like, are there any texts, you know, mathematical equations, pieces of science, um, pieces of knowledge basically that we as humans think are just foundational to what he, what being human means. And, um, you know, is that what some schools think they're doing i mean it's a big question Um, i mean i've
0: got an easy answer no and um, i think there's something really beautiful about saying we're not going to force kids to learn anything they can learn what they're interested in because if i think about it like in my education i was forced to read a few books in school i don't think i was i didn't wasn't forced to read great expectations for example I was forced to read a few Shakespeare plays, but actually as an adult, I become interested in, and I want to read some of these foundational texts. So, uh, George is reading Robinson Crusoe. I read that a few years ago because I wanted to, because it's a, it's like a big deal in the history of literature. Like I chose to read that, but there and were you other you probably be- enjoyed it more. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I definitely, because I wasn't forced to, Yeah. but like, well, two things, you can't force someone to appreciate something. You, you really, really can't. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and no, it, it really is no one's place to decide what's a foundational text or anything else or foundational knowledge. Like if a child or young adult thinks it's important, then they'll learn it. If they don't, then who is it for the generation above them to say like, well, you're being stupid because you're not worrying about it. I don't know. I just don't think we have the authority to say that. It's really, I'm really enjoying saying that though. So maybe I'm just enjoying the, the power of saying no. <laughs> right. The other book I wanted to mention, which is, um it's called Changing Our Minds by Naomi Fisher, and which came out really recently. And Peter Gray wrote the introduction to the book. So I think she probably, and I see this as a kind of update to Free to Learn from a slightly different voice. And it has the blessing of Peter Gray, but there are some important differences. So Fisher is an autism specialist. So she's more focused on adapting education to children's specific needs, which is great. She's British. And the book is aimed more at parents who are thinking about taking their children out of school, basically. Um, she She's not afraid to kind of speculate on the mental health crisis of seeing young people. And she suggests that it might be because we're disempowering young people by saying, these are the things you're being measured by. These are the things you have to do to do it, to get it. And then these young people try and fail, and they feel like they're not in control of their life and their self-esteem. So they sort of you know develop anxiety depression all this It's obviously any simplistic example is not going to be correct but i think she's really onto something in that we essentially kettle these students in a room all day tell them repeatedly how important doing well in tests is and then inevitably the nature of tests is half the people have to fail and i think that's unnecessarily damaging uh so she says that in school, children are in a room, they're being forced to do things, they can't self-regulate, they can't step out if they need a moment they can't handle, many kids can't handle the restrictions of the school environment and often, and this is a big proportion, like 10-20% of children get medicalized. they can't sit still in lessons, so they get diagnosed if they're lucky, with ADHD or autism, they often get given drugs, that means they can focus, the state's really not providing any meaningful alternatives other than medicalization and and drugging which she says is really harmful you know people are different there i guess there there may be something called an autistic spectrum or an adhd spectrum but labeling them really isn't helpful we, we should be diagnosing the environment rather than the child is our key message there might be something wrong with the environment if the child can't sit still for six hours a day why are we saying there's something wrong with the child why do we assume that's something a child should be able to do and when we when a child does struggle with that environment we really don't have offers are significantly different. And I think every teacher sees this. I think almost every class has that child who just doesn't sit still. And I certainly feel like something is very, very wrong. Like we need, this should be ringing alarm bells, essentially. There's a lot of good evidence that children who are born uh, later in the academic year, so they are younger than their peers, end up being more commonly diagnosed with ADHD which suggests that they're being diagnosed for simply not being mature enough, essentially, rather than having a real medical disorder in stricter schools or when exams are coming up, more children get diagnosed and because lessons are becoming more strict and more boring. So there's a lot of, basically we are tending to blame kids for not handling this artificial environment, which we're pushing them into. So, Partly because of her background in autism, she's a lot more flexible about child development. She says we should stop panicking about whether kids can do this or that, this or that age. And we should just let them develop at their own pace. So for example, young kids who uh, who are autistic, they are likely to not have their sort of imaginary fantasy world type play when they're two years old. But they might start doing that when they're seven or eight. The problem is when they're seven or eight, their peers in school are all doing other things. They're all like, I don't know, playing pokemon go or like singing songs or whatever they're, they're different stages of development and so these kids are, t- are basically medicalized as different or a problem whereas really they should just be allowed to play with the two-year-olds like or the kids who are at that stage of development like they should just be free to enjoy the whatever stage they're at and that should be treated as sort of a healthy thing and uh, she's also really obsessed with reading because she's like really militant about we shouldn't worry too much about reading she's like if your kid's nine and they haven't learned to read don't worry it's not so bad like they'll learn to read eventually that's why I kind of brought up reading reading earlier and I think we should probably I should defer to the book because she knows a lot more about this but kids do learn to read at vastly different stages you know uh I'm reading a book now I've just finished a book by Philippa Perry about raising kids and uh Philippa Perry just wrote a great book but she didn't learn to read till she was nine don't know what the story behind that is now she's uh, an author like I think we just need to let things happen in time which is anathema to how schools run especially primary schools where we're constantly as, uh, obsessed with people kids being able to do these things at the right times the difference another difference with peter gray is she's not enthralled unsupervised outdoor play she's like some kids just don't want to do that and that's fine so she's much more about adapting to the child's needs um she's also much more about not judging what's a worthwhile and what's not worthwhile activity for a child. So screen time is one that's going to split the audience, I think. She basically says, like, we shouldn't be telling kids to get off their screens. Number one, parents are probably setting quite a bad example by using screens all the time. The truth is, screens are a big part of our culture. They're an even bigger part of the next generation's culture, unfortunately. Well, maybe I shouldn't be judging it like that. They're a big deal. So kids are going to want to interact with screens. We shouldn't judge whether... Minecraft or even looking at memes is a valuable use of time and I think that's quite a radical thing for her to say that I've not quite worked out where I fall on but again she offers this really beautiful simple message which is don't force kids to do things you're there to make sure they're happy make sure they can pursue their interests freely make sure they feel valued make sure they've got someone to communicate with you're not there to coerce and manipulate them and that includes things like giving them all these cues to show them that you think reading novels is amazing. Like just be yourself and they will probably do as you do, not as you say. So she's a lot more about, yeah, letting kids grow naturally, self-directed learning. Um, and I guess from this book, even more than, than free to learn. So from changing our minds, even more, I thought, well, what about everyone else? You know, fine, all your readers might be thinking about taking their kids out of school and home educating them. But most people can't afford to do that. They can't afford to stop working. They can't afford to like uh, give up that free childcare, which is school. So it's not really a model which could be applied on a wide scale. And unfortunately, Naomi Fisher doesn't, like Peter Gray, she doesn't offer a model that could work for, for everyone. So I think in the world of people who've read her book, a lot of a lot of middle class parents will take their child out of school and that would be good for them i think but it really isn't a solution for the for the masses and yeah i really struggle with this um, i guess i was looking for after or from these re- books what i got was there is an intersection of helping everyone or helping people who need help most and self-directed learning and that's something called minimally invasive education which has only been a concept for the last 30 years or so and it started in India someone put these computers in slums at child head height and they'd have like a mouse and the computer would be behind this like secure screen and it would be connected to the internet and they just left it there there was a camera and they just left it there and observed what happens and very quickly kids found this strange new thing because this is like 2000 so they didn't even know what a computer was and this culture evolved around the computers the kids learned how to first of all use the mouse and click on things and then they were learning how to write things down or use MS Paint to make these artworks then they learned how to get on the internet they learned how to send emails some of them even started learning coding there were no adults involved there was no teacher who was coming in there was just kids learning stuff and then once the discovery was made that knowledge would spread like wildfire throughout the group so what happened was with this minimal in, minimally invasive thing, putting computers in, suddenly hundreds of children were learning how to use computers who wouldn't otherwise have done so. Really beautiful in that it's sort of cost effective. It's not invasive, it's not coercive. You've not, not crushed anyone's love of learning and you've done a lot of teaching. So I think that's a kind of window of hope for me in that maybe with minimally invasive education, you can take the principles of self-directed learning and give everyone the benefits. Obviously, Putting computers in walls in poor areas is not going to replace schools. So it's a question of how far can it be taken and what can we do with that? Um, Any questions from you?
1: Mm. No, I mean, I realize I've come across as quite conservative in most of my questions.
0: No, no, uh, I absolutely need this. Yeah, and I think, you I think you represent the rest of the world, so that's good. I'm
1: nodding my head in the background of most of what you're saying, because it's very enticing. I think, um I, I guess I keep coming back to the practicalities of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also maybe the the research component of it, because every kid... Needs If you're you're going from a kid-centric approach to learning, every child needs something different. Uh, How can you do the research, get the funding, make the change to provide for all children when it's quite hard to pinpoint something that every single child needs? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're just thinking about, okay, well, let's create a supportive environment for learning in in Mm -hmm. a kind of minimally invasive fashion... What does that environment need to be supportive? Well, that's going to change based on the child who's Mm. in that environment or, um, you know, where it is, when it is. Um, So the kind of practical questions, I think, for me, are much harder to wrap my head around. But um, from an ideological perspective, a lot of it seems to make good sense.
0: Yeah. So I've been thinking about what reform would look like because I agree that suddenly abolishing schools and, and going to some sort of self-directed world is uh it's not going to happen overnight. Maybe nor should it, because it might be really chaotic and damaging. What could reform look like if we were to just to take the best of these ideas and apply them to schools as they are now? That's probably what most people are thinking. And um, yeah, I really don't know. I actually think it's really hard to do this kind of reform. If you're talking about giving students more choice about what they learn, I think it's really difficult to go half-hearted on that. Kids smell a rat when you're saying, oh, I'm letting you choose and really you're not because you're giving them like a choice of two things or like you're, there's usually some sort of f- falseness about it and kids detect that. And, you know, if... Basically, if kids are not free to, to walk away, then it is coercive and you lose most of the benefits of of kids being free to learn. What's interesting is I'm in a school who, which professes to, to be attempting reform, attempting some sort of halfway house between mainstream traditional education and something much more liberal where kids can be themselves. So I'm at school 21. It's a state funded school, but unlike most sort of new state funded academies, it explicitly says that it really cares about the whole child and actually wants to commit time, energy and emphasis to what we call the head, heart and the hand. So it really, really, its mission is to kind of let, let, let kids flourish in every way and prepare them for the world as it is, not for the curriculum as it's been written, which is great. So I've got a window into that world of what reform could already look like and you know, as a, as a school, the main things we have are coaching, which is like tutor groups, but much more time is put in.
1: What's a tutor group?
0: So a tutor group, okay, in the UK, because in secondary school, you have all your subject lessons with different teachers. You Your tutor group or your home group, or whatever it's called, is essentially like your class, your actual core class.
1: Right. So it's like your advisory or your homeroom in the US.
0: There you go. So you've got a teacher and ideally that teacher, I would say doesn't teach you any subjects. They just know you as a human being. And in coaching, that's the idea that they know you, they know you as a all around human being. They're looking out for you. And though that time for us in coaching is about exploring ideas that might be relevant to the time they are in their lives and doing debates and helping them, you know, helping them get to know each other, have a community and um, and reflect on their lives a bit I think it's a really cool idea I don't think we necessarily get it right but we, so we've got coaching we've got project-based learning uh, and is that it oh and we've got more emphasis on the arts so as arts funding has been stripped away we still have really good music provision we've still got really good art provision so we think that's still important so we're a kind of halfway school I'd say but like, I'm still not happy with it. We, the most important thing is we have to jump through all the hoops as a state funded school. We've got all these exams, we've got Ofsted inspections, we've got SATs, GCSEs, A-levels, and that just inevitably means that lessons become focused on passing the test. So that core problem is there, which is the teachers are constantly giving these messages like, you need to learn this because it's on the test. Um, we ends up showing children that the credentials is the main point of education. And that's just killing the intrinsic motivation uh so for example i mentioned in the last episode in year 12 we constantly before the summer we were constantly giving children these messages about how studying over the summer was really important they need to cram they need to prepare for in school exams so they can be ready for the end of year exams and they need to be focusing on revision skills and basically memorizing all this junk knowledge and like the well being is just like a thing that's tacked on at the end it really isn't genuine and I think we're kind of turning a blind eye to all the stress and unhappiness that's out there. And the lack of just being a teenager and like exploring that time of your life, we just, we just seem to ignore it. So I feel like even though we're a a nice school, we're missing, we're missing the main benefits. Um, And perhaps one other thing about, about trying to be, trying to be a well-rounded school is that it's loads of work for teachers. We do try to, adapt to the child we're not one of those no excuses schools where it's the same rule for everyone because that's easy we we try and consider different children's contexts what they're going through at home their stage of development their stage of, uh, of learning um how they're feeling we try to take all those things into account and adapt to them there's loads and loads and loads of work and it's really insufficient it still feels like a school there's still a behavior system where people get in trouble. There's still those kids who are disillusioned with education. Uh, sorry if anyone in the School 21 leadership is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a good school in a lot of ways. I just think we suffer from almost all of the main problems of any traditional school, maybe let to a lesser extent. So I feel that we maybe succeed in lessening the damage to children done by school. But that's not good enough, is it? So I'm perhaps perhaps I've got a window into into reform and I'm not loving it. I don't think it's deep or meaningful enough. And I think that the government imposed exams and inspections are a real barrier to meaningful change. So, yeah, reform or revolution. What am I thinking about? Um, Um. So, yeah, my career choice. I can stay as a teacher, and um, the more I look at other options, being a teacher is like a really stable, well-paid job. (laughs) Um, I can try and be a teacher, but a better teacher, one who's looking out for my students' interest, one who's not obsessed with exam results and wants them to develop, as a whole person, wants them to develop self-knowledge and self-directed learning skills. So I can try and just be be the teacher I think everyone should be. And help, help these young people one at a time. And the good thing is, I'll get to see any improvements that are happening. It's really satisfying. I could even try and pursue school leadership and try and have a bigger influence on the things around me, try and change school policy within the school and try and make better things happen. Uh, but that's got a lot of problems. The people I see working in leadership tend to be overworked and, and I just don't really envy what they do. They have to engage even more with these exams and inspections, which I don't like.
1: And it sounds like you think the incremental changes that leadership make don't actually work because of this kind of larger structure imposed by the government. So even if you were to become a head teacher and kind of have this radical transformation, you'd still need to pass Ofsted, so you'd still be screwed.
0: Absolutely. And that's if I could even get to head teacher with such radical, heretic views. Exactly. I completely agree, and also, of course, leadership takes you away from the cold face. You 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 step away from the children, and therefore, inevitably, you're going to stop noticing the damage that coercive education is inflicting. Um, but what else is there, really? You know, so not being a teacher, I guess the, the going down the, I guess this could be reform or revolution route, is stepping away from teaching and trying to. Oh, can you hear that fly? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep,
0: it's loud. Right next to the microphone. Love it. Um, yeah, step away from teaching and try and maybe work for some larger scale and longer term change. And I've been trying to look into that. You know, it's really difficult. I think teaching is something that's easy to get stuck in. And most teachers don't think about alternatives. But there are a few people that I know who I've been trying to plug for information and advice on what's out there. So you've got um, research. Going into university, doing a PhD, doing some research, like trying to test some ideas out and show if they work, and hopefully hoping that one day that will influence policy and therefore education on a bigger level. Um, you've got joining a think tank, which is kind of that next step where you you look at research and try and present it to policymakers. Uh, you've got going into government and trying to be one of those policymakers, or policy enactors and we heard a bit about that from Margaret uh, two episodes ago she did a degree in policy and was kind of put off wow this fly (laughs) she was put off and I think I can see why because once you get into policy I think the main thing is you're enacting it not deciding it people who are deciding policy are politicians so you're really just deciding how best to enact policy I think and that doesn't sound that great because I don't love policy at the moment. don't know mm-hmm. the way it's going. Um, and I guess there's there's also journalism trying to, like this podcast is journalism, you know, trying to pursue that. Um, I hate to admit this, but uh, that this matters, but no one's told me like, oh, you're so good at this, you should be a pro. And that's kind of put me off considering it because I really enjoy doing this podcast. But like, yeah, it's a pretty uh, competitive world trying to grab people's attention be an authority on something. So I love journalism, but you know, of course, obviously the effects of journalism are difficult to, to measure. You know, you can speak to a lot of people, but you don't know if you've ever changed any decisions. I certainly enjoy the lack of accountability. <laughs> <laughs> you can just throw ideas out there. Um, so yeah, there's then those are kind of more tuned more towards revolution, but they still don't seem that revolutionary because they're all basically trying to bring about incremental change it could maybe maybe revolution comes in how you raise your own children i know this is a bit close to the bone with us uh, uh,
1: (laughs) it's a good thing we're talking about it for the first time so publicly
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if we have children there's the question of how to educate them and um i think these the books i've read make a really strong case for not putting your children in school um but obviously that's a very radical thing to do in this day and age and it's not just radical because that's your child's future that you're altering, but to not send a child to school, to home educate them or to send them to a Sudbury school, which have much shorter hours than usual school and cost money. Um, yeah, that's like a big career and financial decision on top of everything else. And I think that kind of decision also affects my career choices because if I can't be like a, if I want to educate my own kids, I can't be like a high powered professor or, um, Journalist
1: who works all crazy hours, right?
0: Exactly. So, there's that whole. Or even
1: maybe head teacher,
0: (laughs) right? Definitely can't be. Well, you couldn't educate your own kids and be a head teacher, though. So, like, there's a whole other thing, you know. How the thing with having your own kids is, you know, obviously. You have to um, agree with your partner. Oh, but really?
1: That's a big part of as it? As a couple,
0: you have to, you can be as idealistic or ideological as you want with your own kids' education. Whereas a teacher, you obviously have to toe the line to some extent. So that's the exciting thing about being a parent. But the consequences of going off the grid are quite big. Yeah. I mean, um,
1: I think people, parents what, who I know say they sacrifice everything for their children. So. That's just they do. one way of Well, they don't sacrifice
0: their careers. No. no. Not always.
1: Well, I mean, I could go to law school or something and sell mm. out, and then financially we'd be fine.
0: That's such a kind offer. Yeah. I accept. Okay. Well,
1: Xander, <laughs> if you're listening, you can tutor me for the LSAT.
0: Yeah. Um, so, and actually, probably that's, that's probably the most revolutionary path, is to hem-educate your own children. Because then you're a revolutionary example to others around you. And if you influence a few others, then you have you have been a bit revolutionary. Um, I guess the other thing is I'm genuinely interested in, in kids and not, you know, I want to step away from just talking about how to teach maths because I think education is so much more than that. And I think it's so much more than even school. And I'm really interested in in how we raise children. Unfortunately, I think it's, and this is fair, you can't be an authority in raising children until you've done it. So I kind of would like to be Philip Perry and write a book about how to raise kids. The only problem is I don't know anything about it because I've not done it. So that's kind of... uh, Then again, you don't want to have kids just so you can write a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully
1: they never listen to the podcast episode.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, So yeah, there's a lot of... Basically, this whole period I've been going through in the last nine months with the podcast really can't overstate how big it's been for me because i've gone from being someone who was like oh i'm finally like getting happy as a teacher and this isn't so stressful anymore and i can find a balance in my life to the point where i'm now like wait this is all so messed up and like i'm just a part of that machine i'm not hating my job but i'm just thinking like once you've seen a better way once you've seen a, this utopian vision can you walk away from it can you just say like well that's too hard i'm not going to try
1: how do you think, uh, as someone who has had a glimpse of the utopian vision but still has to go through a PTCE... Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess this is a question for a lot of teachers and for you right now. Are there ways in the classroom that you can put into practice some of what you're thinking that, sure, aren't revolution and may come much closer to reform? Oh, this fly.
0: Oh, I nearly got it. I literally touched it. Um...
1: But are there, you know, almost like coping mechanisms, almost ways that you can make a small impact in the classroom, given what you know, given the journey you've been on, but still work in a traditional system? Or is that completely impossible?
0: I haven't thought that much about it. I know, I know last episode I shared the little speech I say to my students, which was supposed to be um, a little speech against all the messaging around academic stuff they've been given so that's kind of one example of maybe me sticking to my principles while being a teacher yeah and i think there are small things like that i can do actually- i know it
1: doesn't feel impactful to you mm. because you're thinking so big but yeah. maybe for me about to go into this kind of formalized training yeah. where i do i mean need to pass yeah. you know i need to check some boxes uh maybe a question for six months from now was how did i Manage to hold fast to some yeah. of the principles I entered the program with in such a challenging environment.
0: I know this, this is really hard but I think the best thing to do is actually shut off all these big questions that we've been talking about and sh- and in a sense almost shut off some of your principles and just learn to be a good teacher according to what the PGC said is a good teacher and just get your head around the basics because some of these skills that you're going to need like how to control 25 children at the same time. Jesus, yeah. Like those are really really key and you can't have any doubts in the back of your mind when you're when you're stepping into that new role as a teacher. Uh, as a coercive teacher when you're stepping into that role and you've got you're setting really clear boundaries for your children and you're you're showing them with your body language when they're doing something which is not acceptable and you're showing when you're showing them with your body language when they're doing something which is good you just need to fully embody that character there's and, so
1: much performativity in teaching it's amazing so
0: so much performativity in coercive teaching <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there is. And I honestly think it's such a hard thing to do that you don't want anything else on your mind. You just want to focus on like picking up that skill. And then later down the road, once you've got good at it, then you can start thinking about, all right, how can I make this mine? Hmm. Because PDC is really hard. You're just trying to stay afloat really in some of these, some of these lessons. And like look, looking after your own sanity and working on those skills is plenty enough to be working on.
1: So you're saying but, I shouldn't go into the first day of school and say, hi, I'm Zoe, I'm a coercive teacher. And-
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you should be definitely scouting out some guests for me. Mm. But um, no, I think, well, no, I think you will do this. Go in humble because, you know, you're relearn- you do know quite a lot about young people and teaching, actually, because you've done some. But you're relearning this really specific type of... And I think it's best to just, to just take a seat and like learn. Um, coercively <laughs> learn to control children, whether they want it or not. Um, yeah, that's my advice. And also my pledge to you, which I've already said to you, I'm saying it on a recorded podcast now is well, you're going to find some of this PGC really difficult as I did. And you did a really good job of supporting me through that. Um, you know, so many times I came back feeling stressed, feeling tired, feeling like I didn't want to talk, and you gave me space when I needed it, and you gave me support when I needed it, so thank you so much, even though, you know, you've got your own things to go through at the time. So I'm going to focus on just listening to what you're going through, feeling some of that with you, and hopefully supporting you through that, rather than oversharing my thoughts like oh my god school is so stupid i have to do all this stuff like isn't it isn't it so stupid the system we're in <laughs> i'm gonna try and not do that because you don't need to hear that
1: and you... if i want to i'll listen to the podcast
0: right yeah exactly <laughs> um so that's just an offer i'm gonna make to you
1: thank you that's a very kind and good offer that will definitely make a big impact next year
0: well we'll see if i hopefully we can come back to those questions i asked at to start and see how your perspective or whether it's changed and whether you change your mind on what the hardest thing is. Definitely. I'm just going to throw something out there. I don't think the text is going to be the hardest thing. Um, maybe getting kids to relate to the test, like to the text, like you said, is going to be hard. But I, I suspect it's going to be some other things. But um, mm. we'll see. I'm sure everyone on the show is wishing you best of luck.
1: Thanks, everyone.
0: Um, I certainly am. Um, I think before we finish I just wanted to share Some of my hopes For the future of the show uh, The next step is Sort of bringing in guests Who I don't personally know I haven't been very good At disclosing how I know people But I've known everyone Who's come on the show on, You know from Through work Through through friends Or even through family um, So I want to bring in Some people I don't know Bring in some other Kind of areas of expertise um, I wanna to speak to a teacher who's in a more radical school. I'd like to go visit a radical school to be honest, because you know, reading about them's great, but then it's like what's the real you know, what's the reality like? I wanna to speak to someone, like I said, who's on the other side of the argument, who's more traditional and really believes that that's the best way to help kids and, and I think maybe that's the my biggest concern with the unschooling movement of which Peter Gray and Naomi Fisher are part are part of. It it's It's not very – I'm not sure whether it's open to criticism. It just doesn't expose itself to criticism because it's an opt-in community. Taking your kids out of school is pretty radical. So you're not, like, looking for an argument if you're doing that. You're looking for people to to justify this very scary decision you've made. So I would like to expose these ideas of unschooling and and, uh, independent learning, self-directed learning. Wow, that fly – I would like to expose some of these ideas to disagreement, to the main arguments against. I don't think we've done a bit of that today, but I think it's going to be more genuine when it comes from people who who genuinely, like, really disagree and want my ideas to go die. Um, So I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to expose that to some rigour. I think that's my niche. And I'm just going to shout out to this new podcast called... um, Rethinking education, which is kind of shaking me a little bit because it's kind of a bit on my turf. It's doing what I do with a lot more guests, with a lot more shows, with a lot more listeners. And, you know, it is, it is a good, it is a good show. But I think what rethinking education is not doing is what I just said, which is exposing these ideas to, to rigorous argument, to disagreement. And there's a little bit too much self-congratulation there. So that's what I want to focus on because I do like disagreement and I do like exposing myself to, to other ideas and I do, I like to think occasionally change my mind, and I, to be honest, at this stage, I'm looking for reasons not to believe in self-directed <laughs> self-directed education because the consequences is my career is so and deep. life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm hoping to do. If anyone's listening and they're like, "Yeah, I'm up for a fight," and you want to talk about this and maybe propose other ideas or disagreements, please get in touch because I genuinely want to hear from you and and collaborate with you. So yeah, our future episodes. Um, I'd like to speak to someone who's been through unschooling through home education and is now an adult. and I wanted to reflect on on how that was for them. Um, I want to maybe speak to someone from university who's in, who's involved in university admissions. And I kind of want to get them to... I want to plug them about what they think people who finish school, what are they good at? What are they bad at? What is school preparing kids well for in university and what is it not preparing them well for? And I guess if I'm going to speak to someone from university, I should speak from, to an employer too. What do they think education is is good for, and what's it lacking in terms of preparing people from the world of the world of work uh, I want to speak to someone who has chosen to um, pursue a different uh, or an alternative career choice ideally someone who works very little part time and who didn't have to and just see what that's like from them uh, and I'd like to speak to someone who's interested in the philosophy of education because I do like these sort of highbrow theoretical conversations. Um, so I do want to keep having those as well. So I've got loads of ideas for the things, the future things I want to do, and it's really, really exciting. Joey, thank you so much for for that. I could have spent hours writing a ten-minute episode, but this has been way more fun.
1: Way more fun.
0: I think it's been way better.
1: Hopefully, yeah.
0: I and think. I. I think people are going to enjoy following your story through me. I might give some updates. All right. Over how your story. Is good to see. <laughs> It'll be. A...
1: It will be. Uh, oh Zoe came home crying today for the third day in a row. I guess so. Zoe's yeah. really passionate about everything, and I'm finding it hard because I don't agree with anything she says.
0: <laughs> I'll check with you what what you're happy being shared and whatnot, okay. but uh, yeah, we I'm... can be
1: honest. I mean, I think the journey of becoming a teacher is going to really surprise me hmm. because I think. I'll be surprised by how much there is to learn and perfect and almost how uh, regimented it kind of needs to be. Hmm. And maybe other people will also be surprised by some of those things. I probably can't anticipate everything I'll be surprised by, hopefully not. So, yeah, I think uh, following the journeys might be interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, I will keep people posted on how you're doing. But before September, we can just look forward to six weeks of just summer together. I can't wait.
1: And reading Great Expectations. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) It's going to be great.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you, audience, for joining me through this second season of About Learning with me, Stan Pinson. Today, you were listening to Zoe Gozzi-Sprague. Have a great summer, and I look forward to being with you all in the autumn. Bye.